Well, good morning. If you have a Bible this morning, why don't you open it to John chapter 2, and we're looking at verse 13 and following. John 2, 13. Well, if you're just kind of joining us, we're ending, wrapping up a, a series called Behold the Lamb, where we've gone through the book of John and shown how John the Apostle very intentionally kind of set up the book of John to reveal who Christ is. That's his goal, to reveal who Christ is. And he goes through and he tells these stories in very <clears throat> a strategic ways in order to show more and more who Christ is, who he knew Christ to be, and who he hoped you would know Christ to be. And this morning, we come to one of the most famous episodes of Jesus's life, the cleansing of the temple. Now, if you don't know the story, just very quickly, the idea is Jesus comes into the temple in Jerusalem, and he finds a, uh, just a, basically a marketplace going on inside the temple, and he takes uh, some cords, and he makes them into a whip, and he drives out all the people that are doing this from the temple, okay? Now, this idea of Jesus does not, you know, coincide well with our 20th century kind of picture of Jesus as some sort of kind of almost effeminate, hippie, lovey guy, right? Kind of everybody hugging everybody, Jesus does not sit well with the got a whip and whipped people, Jesus, but that's what the Bible tells us. And it does so in such a way that it sets up some very crucial ideas about who Christ is. Now, here is, is an interesting biblical thing that we need to pay attention to. Number one, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they tell the story of Jesus cleansing the temple, they tell it at the end of the books. Okay, so if you want to find the cleansing of the temple, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you're gonna turn to the very end of those books. And in those books, they list the cleansing of the temple as the straw that broke the camel's back as far as the priests are concerned, as far as the, the Jewish rulers are concerned. The reason Matthew, Mark, and Luke say that the Jewish rulers decided to, to get Jesus and kill him is because of the cleansing of the temple. But John puts the cleansing of the temple in the beginning of his work, not at the end. And in fact, in the book of John, the thing that makes the, the Jewish rulers of the time want to kill him, Jesus, is the raising of Lazarus from the dead in the book of John. So you have this totally kind of opposite picture. John saying that the cleansing of the temple happened at the beginning of his ministry, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke and John saying, no, it happened at the, or Matthew, Mark, and Luke saying at the end of their books, this is the reason that they wanted to kill him. So the question becomes, okay, what happened? Well, Scholars, some scholars will say, well, Jesus cleansed the temple twice. He went in at the beginning of his ministry. He went at the end of his ministry. He did it twice. I don't think that's what happened. Okay, I think, and I'm gonna explain why I don't think that. First of all, how do you do that twice? Like, the second time you come in, don't they go, oh, there's the whip guy, watch out. Like, I mean, don't you kind of figure it out by that point? He's not gonna be happy about this going on again. How do you do, I don't, I don't think that's what's going on. Instead, what I think is happening is that John tells the story in the beginning for a literary point, okay? He's making an image of Christ. Now, if you've been with us at all, you know John is filled with imagery. He's filled with this kind of stuff, and you're gonna watch him use this story and, and a, a brilliant play on words in order to establish the point that he's ultimately trying to make. Now, if you're asking yourself, you're saying to yourself, well, what, can he just move the, it around like that? How can he do that? Well, real simple. 
let's say that I'm going to write a book about Abraham Lincoln. Okay, and I'm going to write a book about Abraham Lincoln. I'm writing a biography of Abraham Lincoln. You would expect it to go in a certain way. Born in Kentucky, moved to Illinois, becomes a lawyer, tries a business, fails. Tries to get elected to Congress, fails. Tries in business, fails. Tries to get elected to Congress, fails. Tries in business, fails. Tries to get elected to Congress, fails. Tries to become a lawyer, fails. Tries to go into business, fails. Tries to get elected to Congress, fails. Becomes president, right? Like, that's, that's the story of Lincoln, okay? Now, if I, on the other hand, was writing a book about why Lincoln was the greatest president in the history of the United States... Then I would take a lot of his events of his life and move them around. And I would, might start with the Emancipation Proclamation. And then I might put in uh, his struggles as an early lawyer. And then I might come back and talk about how he revolutionized the railroad by using it. In, you know, and I might move all the stuff around and you wouldn't have a problem with that. You'd go, okay, because he's not writing a biography. He's trying to explain his thesis about Lincoln. Well, that's what John's doing. He's trying to explain his thesis about Jesus and so he takes these events and he moves them however he needs to in order to illuminate the point. Now, let's go to the story and let's watch how he does it. In John chapter two, verse 13, he begins the story. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Passover is one of the themes of John. He continually tells the story of Passover. The, the idea that a lamb is slain, blood is placed over the doorway, and the judgment of God passes over is one of the salvific themes of John. There are three Passovers in the book of John, and that's how we know Jesus ministered for three years about, because he appears at a Passover, there's a Passover in the middle, and he dies at a Passover. Each one of the Passovers in the book of John, something monumental happens and it becomes kind of this thing. Whenever a Passover comes, something huge is going to happen. And this is the first one. It's sort of the introduction of this amazing person and what happens to them as John points out that Jesus is God in the flesh, his opening statement. So here's what happens. He goes into the temple, and in verse 14 it says this. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, a very popular misconception has arisen about this story. And it, it goes along these lines. Th that they were selling animals was not the problem. Okay. This is actually a very necessary service. Okay. And let me tell you why. By the time that Jesus is on the earth, most Jews don't live in Jerusalem or Judea or even in Israel. Most Jews live scattered about the Roman empire because of what Babylon had done centuries before. Now, when they come and they want to make a sacrifice at the temple, okay, uh, when it says oxen, sheep, pigeons, these are the majority of the animals that, that Israel has to sacrifice, either oxen or lambs or sheep or doves, pigeons, that kind of idea. If you're coming from Ephesus to Jerusalem, you cannot drive an oxen that far. It's hundreds of miles in ancient times. It, I don't want to drive an oxen to the end of this row. Like, if you're like, you got to take an oxen to Texas. I'm like, no, like there's not, how do you do that? So they would travel to Jerusalem and buy the animal there, which was perfectly allowable under the law. The problem is there's two problems about what they're doing. It's not that they're selling these animals. It's number one, they were selling animals at eight, nine, 10 times their market price. 
okay? So you'd show up there and you'd say, I'd like to buy an oxen. And they'd say, $10,000. And you'd be like, there are only a thousand at home. And they'd be like, well, you ain't home, are you? Now, the good capitalist in us says, supply and demand, baby, that's how it goes, okay? But they also had this scam going on. Because what they would do is you'd show up with your Ephesus money or your Roman money, and they'd say, we don't take that. You've got to use special Jewish money. And they'd go, well, here's 10 Roman dollars. And they'd say, oh, that's only 50 cents. Sorry. So they'd make you pay exorbitant interest in order to get the right money to buy the oxen that's way overpriced. So it's avarice and greed is, the part, is, is part one. It's not that they were selling these animals. It's that they were, they were just crushing people in debt with how they sold them. And number two, it's where they were selling them. Now, when you see them talk about being in the temple, we have to make some distinctions because there's a little bit of <clears throat> sort of, I guess, the way the place is laid out that we need to understand. So when you see the temple, I'm going to trip over this and y'all are going to laugh, so I'm going to move it right now so it doesn't happen. Okay. Uh, the way it's laid out, in Jesus' time, what we know as the temple is actually called Herod's temple, all right? <clears throat> it had taken decades to build, to build. And when Jesus gets there, there's this massive complex, okay? And the whole thing was called the temple, the whole complex. But then you had the temple proper, which was the actual temple in the middle. Now, this is all gone now. This has all been destroyed. In 70 AD, Israel rebels. Actually, in 68 AD, Israel rebels against Rome again. And Rome says, that's it. We're done. And sin comes in and they destroy everything. There's the only thing left of this temple is one wall in Jerusalem called the Wailing Wall. If you've ever heard of that before, that's, what, that's all that's left of Herod's temple. Um, there's actually a mosque in Israel where this used to be now. But this complex is laid out like this. Now, on these outer rings here, you have what's called the Court of the Gentiles. Okay, Here and here, Court of the Gentiles. And the idea is, if you're a Gentile, and the Hebrew word for Gentile just means the nations, okay? So if you aren't Jewish, you're a Gentile just because you're from the other nations. The court of the Gentiles is as far as the Gentile could go into the temple. Only Jews could go into the temple to worship God. Now, if you remember our study of John, what do we have? We have physical reality demonstrating a spiritual reality. So as far as the Gentile is concerned, when they want to worship God, this is as far as they can go. They can't go any further. Now, if you're a Jew, you can go into the temple. Women can only go up to here, the court of the women. Men can only go to here, the court of Israel. And then only priests who are Levites, Levites, only Levites, and then only Levites of a certain family who are priests can go into the actual temple proper. And then only priests who have been selected by drawing straws get to go into the actual temple to serve the, the bread and the candles that are in there. And then only one Levite priest one time a year gets to go all the way in and stand before the presence of God. So what you have here is separation, 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 separation. So what's going on is that these animals that Israel is going to offer for sacrifice are being sold in the court of the Gentiles. So the image is 
the only place a Gentile has to go to pray is a stockyard. And Israel has placed all these animals there. Now, we're going to go into some Old Testament passages because I need to show you some things. But I want to be perfectly clear here. When we get into these passages, it's going to talk about Israel as a whole uh, being uh, the covenant people of God and being uh, a light to the Gentiles and these kind of things. And when we start talking about the failures of Israel, let me be clear, not all Israel failed. There are believing Jews, okay? John is the writer of this book who is a believing Jew. Paul is a believing Jew who becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. But when you hear me say Israel fails, I'm talking about as the covenant, okay? Not as the individual people of the nation, uh, but as the covenant is, is concerned, okay? So here's what's going on here. What happens through the centuries is Israel, because of the commandments given to them, and because of human sinfulness, not Jewish sinfulness, human sinfulness, uh, begins to play out a sort of spiritual racism toward Gentiles. We're God's people and you aren't. And they begin to shun Gentiles to where even they aren't allowed to go into Gentiles' houses or not to touch them and that Gentiles are less than. But that wasn't the original purpose of Israel becoming God's covenant people. The reason Israel becomes God's covenant people is well said in Isaiah, for example, when God says this, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people as a light for the nations. Now, what's the word nations? Gentiles. As a matter of fact, if you, some of your Bible translations will just translate this verse as a light for the Gentiles. Israel was meant to be a light for the Gentiles. Okay? This is what all the offerings are about. This is what all the candles are about. They were meant to be a, a people of God in the middle of the nations that showed who God was so the Gentiles could see it and respond. But human sinfulness creeps in. And where in the Old Testament, when Joshua leads the people into the land of Canaan, and God tells them, don't be like the Canaanites. Don't become idol worshipers. Don't sacrifice your children. Don't let your children marry them. Don't marry them. Don't be like them. They here have nothing to do with them. Okay, shut them out. And so you can see how the hard-hearted of those in Israel at the time would say, yeah, sell the animals in the Gentiles' court. Who cares? They don't need to be here anyway. This hard-heartedness that we all have, it becomes evident in this. Now, rabbis at the time were taking verses from the Old Testament and showing how the Gentiles shouldn't even be there in the first place. Okay, in Zechariah chapter 14, uh, it says this. It starts out kind of weird, but you'll, you'll follow it. Every pot in Jerusalem and Judah will be holy unto the Lord Almighty. You're going, okay. And all who come to sacrifice will take some of the pots and will cook in them. But here's the part I want you to see. And on that day, meaning the day of judgment, when Israel is restored and those kind of things, this is a prophecy of that time. It says, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. And can you see how easy a hard-hearted rabbi or a hard-hearted Pharisee would say, they're not even supposed to be here anyway. When the Lord comes back and establishes Messiah, we're going to get rid of these Canaanites anyway. 
That's the idea, and that's what, get, that's what kind of becomes sort of this, this understanding. You watch the Pharisees accuse Jesus of this all the time. When he even speaks to Roman soldiers or to Gentile soldiers, they go, he's a friend of Gentiles. How could he possibly be the Messiah? How could this guy be the Messiah when he's talking to Gentiles? That's the picture that these people are spreading among the nation of Israel at the time. So when you see Jesus react this way, what he is reacting to is not that they are selling animals. It's that there's sinfulness in his house. And even he says this was meant to be a place of prayer. Jesus, as a matter of fact, quotes the verse, you were meant to be a light to the Gentiles. And so in John 2.15, he does this, and making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen and he poured out of the, the coins of the money chasers and overturned their tables. Now, we know this portion well. Now, what's interesting about this is that the Old Testament predicts this. And if Israel had been dedicated to their covenant and people of, uh, of faith among them and the Holy Spirit had spoken to them and shown them this, they should have expected this, Okay. In Malachi chapter three. Now, if you have your Bibles, you want to flip back to Malachi, do that. Just a few pages back, right before Matthew in Malachi chapter three. This is the prophet Malachi, who's the last prophet of the Old Testament speaking. And this is what he says. Now, in the book of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you have John the Baptist show up. John the Baptist, people ask him, who are you? He says, I am the one coming to prepare the way for the Lord. I am the one saying, make your heart ready for the Lord. That kind of idea. So in Malachi 3.1, he says this, behold, this is God speaking, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. So when people would ask John the Baptist, who are you? He would say, I am the one preparing the way before him. Like, shouldn't you go, huh, wait a minute, that sounds familiar, okay? That's what's going on here. I will send my messenger, he will prepare the way before me and read the sentence, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly Come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, in which you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Hello? When the one who's going to prepare the way comes, then the Lord you seek is going to show up in his temple. John the Apostle who's trying to show that Jesus is God, has John the Baptist prepare the way, I am the one coming to prepare the way, and then puts Jesus in the temple. The Lord you seek is in the temple. Now, pay very close attention to language here, okay? Very close attention to language. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like Fuller's soap. This is a message of judgment, okay? On judgment day, who can stand before the Lord? Nobody. No one will stand before the Lord on judgment day unless Christ speaks for them. On judgment day, the book of Revelation says, God won't even have to say that we're guilty of sin. We will say it ourselves. When Isaiah sees the Lord, God doesn't do anything. He just shows himself to Isaiah. And Isaiah says, I'm a sinner and I live among a people of unclean lips. Everybody I know is a sinner. Everybody I've ever met is a sinner. We're all sinners. Destroy me, God. 
Y'all don't have to do anything. Unless Christ speaks for us, no one will stand on the day of judgment. But watch the language play out here. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi. Not the sons of Israel. Not the sons of Judah. The sons of Levi. Who's Levi? If you're a priest in the temple, you're a Levite. The only place for the Levites was the temple. When it says he'll purify the sons of Levi, that's a phrase for the priesthood. He will purify the priesthood, and so to speak, and refine them like gold and silver. And, and this is how you know he's talking about the priesthood. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. And then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in former years. So what's it saying here? The Old Testament here is pointing to the Messiah will show up, he'll show up in the temple, and he will refine the sons of Levi. He'll refine the priesthood so that righteousness is offered in the temple. Now, here's where you're gonna get caught by John, okay? I get caught by this every time. All right, Jesus makes the whip, drives people out of the, court, out of the, out of the, the temple, and then he says... This should be a house of prayer, and you have turned my father's house into a, what does he say? Den of thieves, den of robbers, right? How many of you say den of thieves, den of robbers? Come on, come on, come on, it's okay. You're like, oh, I'm not gonna play. Okay, den of thieves, house of robbers, right? Now, go back to John and look in John, chapter two, verse 16, because it says, and he told those who sold pigeons Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Or maybe you have merchandise. Now, wait a minute. I know it says den of thieves. And you're right. It says that in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but not in John. In John, it says my father's house into a house of trade or merchandise. Why? Okay, is John making up a story here? What's he doing? No, John is playing on an Old Testament verse and he's making a point. The Old Testament verse is Zechariah 14, 21 about the pots, okay? Where it says, and on that day, there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord Almighty. Hebrew word for Canaanite is Kenawahi, okay? Or Kenawa for Canaan. And in the Old Testament, it's translated one of two ways, either Canaanite or merchant, trader. What Jesus is in effect saying when he confronts these people in the court of the Gentiles is you will take these things away and do not make my father's house into a house of Canaanites. See, Israel's mistake was thinking that just because they were born Jewish, they were people of the covenant. That wasn't the deal. It was only those who obeyed the covenant who were people of the covenant. Only those who believed the covenant and obeyed the covenant who were people of the covenant. And when God tells them, don't become like the Canaanites, don't do the things the Canaanites do, he doesn't say that because he's saying Canaanites are bad. He's saying Canaanites are unbelievers. Don't become an unbeliever. 
Don't stop having the faith you have in the covenant that I've given you. Obey it from faith. And there are Jews who did that. There are Jews who certainly did that. When Jesus shows up in the temple, we meet Jews who were, have been told, stay here and don't leave because you're going to get to see him. But what Jesus sees that day is the unbelief of Israel, if you will. And he says to those Jews, you have become what you despised. You have become a Canaanite. The traditional enemies of God, Israel would use them as pejoratives. You are a Canaanite. You're a Philistine. We still kind of say that sometimes for an uncouth person. You Babylonian, you Roman. Israel has become what they despised. And please hear me. Israel was meant to be a light. They were meant to be a light to the world so that the nations could see them and see God in their midst and in seeing God in their midst, respond. And the church is the same. We hold the same responsibilities, that we are the people of God, people adopted by him to be his own possession, a royal chosen people, me, you, Christian believers, we are meant to be a light. And when we begin to partake in the things that aren't of God, are of the world, we become what we despise. When we set aside grace and the gospel and Christ for legalism or religion or denominationalism, we become Canaanites. We become a people that the world can't respond to because we are no longer the people of God. We're the people of religion. We're the people of a religious system. The gospel is the only good. Christ is the only good. We watch Christ take the gospel to those the people of his time considered the Canaanites the Roman soldier, the bleeding woman, the leper, pardon me, the whore, the demon-possessed. He takes the gospel to them. He speaks the gospel to them, and they become the believer. And that's what this whole thing's about. When, in, in, when you continue in the story, uh, at the end of the story, when it's all said and done, The disciples say they remember when he was raised from the dead. They remember that he had said these things. Now, Jesus had told them, you destroy this temple. And what's interesting is, is when you were talking about the temple complex, remember the whole complex? Use the Greek word, heron, okay? But when you were talking about the holy of holies, where God lived, you called it the nous. And in this phrase, when it says, you destroy this temple, I'll raise it in three days. He didn't say heron, although that's what they think he said. They, they act like he said, I should say. He says, destroy this nous. Destroy this presence of God. I'll raise it in three days. And he does. Only he doesn't exactly raise it in the way they think. He raises it bodily because Jesus is alive, amen? He raises it in us. Because you and I are called the temple of God for a reason. God lives in us. 
We are the light of the world and the salt of the earth, not because we are good in and of ourselves, but because there is grace and mercy and we know him. We're meant to be a place where the unbeliever, the Gentile, the uncouth, the sinner, the whore, the leper comes and says, these must be the people of God. Who could be like this if they weren't? as we contemplate who Christ is, as we come to the season when we praise God for his arrival, remind yourselves his arrival was not for nothing. It wasn't for people to assemble and be good people and look down their nose at those who weren't their definition of good people. Israel's made that mistake. The New Testament tells us they were given to us as an example. So we shouldn't walk in disobedience in the same ways they did. We respond to the gospel. We respond to who Christ is when we, pardon the phrase, behold the lamb. The light shines. It's a city on a hill. It's a lamp on a stand. It's a bride in her dress. The attention of the nations will turn and they will behold God among us. That's why you're here. And don't kid yourselves. That's the only reason you're here. Would you stand and pray with me? As we close our service, some of our elders and their spouses are gonna be here to pray with you. If you find yourself in any walk of life this week, walking in unbelief, not just about who Jesus is, but about how Jesus is working in your life. Maybe you need him to show up in a, in a huge way in a certain area, but unbelief is just causing you to go, I just, I can't go there. We'd love to pray with you about that. But most of all, if you don't know this Christ, who will speak for us on judgment day. I pray you, to use the biblical language, will flee the wrath that's coming. Only Christ will stay the Father's wrath. Come and be saved, believe, and follow John, who says we write these things so that you may believe and our joy can be made full in you. Let's pray together. Our Father God, you are beyond all we could ask or imagine. You are, you are all. There's no word that can, can contain you. I pray that you let us see Jesus. I believe it's in John where Gentiles come and tell the disciples, sirs, we would see Jesus. So let us follow in their steps. And God, I pray that you will show each one of us who claim the name of Christ how you have called us to be the light of the world. Individually, your word says that each one of us has been gifted with the Holy Spirit in order to be a praise to your glory. That every one of us is light. God, I don't know how you've called each one of us. I know that if we are in your son, you have. And so, Father, I pray that you'll show us each how you would have us walk, how we would live. 
that we will not settle back into unbelief, that we will press on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold of us. God, above all things, make us a praise to your glory so that in all things you can be shown to be great. I do not have godliness or greatness or holiness in me except that which you've planted. And let me display it. Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior King, we pray these things. Amen.